This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. I do want to talk about something that we didn't get to yesterday because we got talking about Ontario Premier Doug Ford and the vaccine rollout and confidence levels, and they don't appear to be overly high. But I want to talk about Disney Plus and this disclaimer because I think there's a, a real miss here going on. A miss kind of like Aaron O'Toole, thinking, hey, this is going to resonate with Canadians. No, no, they're going to mock you, and it wasn't a good video anyway. Who shot that? What did they shoot that with? But Disney Plus has this idea that they've put on old shows. So things like The Muppet Show or Peter Pan. The Muppet Show is probably the best example of this. Because if you watch The Muppet Show... It was created a long, long time ago, and stereotypes were a lot stronger than they are now. And some of the stuff that was done on The Muppet Show should never have been done. But there was no one saying, no, you can't do that. So they did it. It just, it shouldn't have been done. It wasn't right then, it's not right now. So what does Disney Plus do, knowing that... There are going to be stereotypes or there are going to be depictions of whether it is race or gender or whatever it is that really are wrong. What do they do? They've put together a disclaimer. And here's what it says. This program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. So they're admitting this. And it does. These stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. Okay. Now, I want you to think about how this is presented. This disclaimer comes on at the beginning of the show. Who is most apt to watch The Muppet Show? Maybe somebody who watched it back when they were eight. Sure. But if it's there, kids are seeing Muppets. Kids are going to watch it. Are kids going to bother reading the disclaimer? In fact, is anyone going to bother reading the disclaimer? Remember, what is the most commonly clicked on thing on the internet? I agree. Or yes. When we're asked to read through all of the legal mumbo-jumbo and what we're turning our information over to. It's, hey, I need my stuff. Hey, get through this. Hey, I know, ah, too many clauses. Where's the I agree? Oh, whew, there's the I agree button. Click, and then you get your thing. That's what a disclaimer is. Nobody's reading this. So we ended up talking about this this morning, and our own Jess Brady raised an absolutely brilliant idea. And after she raised it, First of all, she should go and work for Disney as of right now, but we're not letting her go. But I went through and I looked and I thought, yeah, that's got to be what they're doing. Jess said, you know what they should do? They should use this like a pop-up video. That's how you're going to learn from it. And if Disney Plus and Disney, if they were so concerned about learning from things, learning what stereotypes are inappropriate, learning what sorts of comments are inappropriate... They would do that. They would have a pop-up that came up. Remember pop-up video? Love pop-up video. Learn all kinds of things. There you are watching an MC Hammer video, and you learn, wow, when MC Hammer was nine years old, this happened to him. 
really cool stuff. A lot cooler than that, of course. It's a bad example. But that's something that we should do. You know, here is the moment that you should learn from. This is not right. It wasn't right then. It's not right now. Just as Disney said. Instead, they throw up a disclaimer at the beginning, which says these stereotypes were wrong. How many kids who are seven years old can breeze through the words stereotypes, mistreatment, inclusive future, spark conversation, in a matter of seconds, and know exactly what's going on. No, no, no. Disney, you've got to be better than this. You've got to do a better job. If you look at Looney Tunes, and I'm not saying go and edit this, because that's not right. Don't take it out if you're using this as a learning tool, because that was something that Looney Tunes did. Remember Foghorn Leghorn and the dog who was in the doghouse? And Foghorn Leghorn would say something, the dog would get all angry and start running at Foghorn Leghorn and his leash would snap him back. When we watched that, either as kids or even, you know, if you watched it, let's say in the 70s or in the 80s, you would see the dog get snapped back. If you watch that exact segment on Looney Tunes now, they've edited it out so that you don't see the dog, you just see Foghorn Leghorn, and you hear the noise of the dog getting stopped in the background. It's just kind of a yelp, and so you can picture what's going on, but you're not seeing it. You know, that's that's a different thing, because that's not a stereotype, that's not anything racist or sexist, but that's edited. I'm not looking for edits here, but if you're going to educate somebody, you've got to show them what it is that you're trying to teach them. Especially for young people. Instead, Disney Plus is chucking up this disclaimer and then letting fly. And once it flies by, you're just seeing it as is. Is that not helping to create more of the stereotype? Is that not helping to create more of the cultural bias or more of the gender bias? Yeah, it is. Because you're just letting it fly. Jess Brady's pop-up video. That's what needs to be happening. Here's hoping Disney does something like that. Because otherwise, you're what? Hoping that you have parents and kids watching the show together? Sure, that might happen sometimes. And parents could then be that pop-up video. Hey, you see what they're doing there? There was a disclaimer at the beginning, and this is what they were referring to. This is what is not acceptable. But it's not going to be like that. Kids know how to use TV. Kids know how to use Disney+. Plus. You don't have to be very old to master the remote control. You want to know how a remote control works? Give it to a five-year-old. They will know every single button. You want to know how a phone works? Give it to somebody who's used it for two days but is under the age of 12. They'll know exactly how it works. They're not intimidated by it, and they figure it out. So kids are watching this, not reading the disclaimer, and then seeing the content that comes after. Disney, you So right now, let's take some time and let's understand a little bit more about the rollout and about aiming toward those who are 80 and above as opposed to, and there was a model that was put together back in the summer that if we're in a certain situation, it should be people who are, say, 80 and above, 70 and above. If we're in a different situation, when vaccines become available, it should be those who are maybe in their 20s or 30s. And there were two separate models that way. We had a chance to talk with Dr. Chris Bach, 
who is a professor of applied mathematics at the University of Waterloo. And he began by outlining what the statistics have shown us about death rates and COVID-19. Death rates, they accelerate so quickly as individuals get older. It's much higher for seven-year-olds than 60-year-olds. And again, it's much higher for 80-year-olds and 70-year-olds. And the 80-year-olds really suffer the, the, the brunt of, of, the, of, of the mortality uh, in, in this pandemic. And so age is really the biggest predictor of, uh, you know, of how likely you are to have a serious uh, complication or to die from COVID. Um, so, so as you know, as we discussed earlier, sometimes you can use a vaccine to, to block transmission and you can actually prevent more deaths by blocking transmission and, and stopping the transmission. Uh, than you can by prioritizing older age groups. Uh, and our study showed that whether you should use the vaccine to block transmission or whether you should prioritize older age groups really depends upon where you are as the pandemic unfolds. Um, so w- where we're at right now is, is that, you know, we're restarting the vaccine program. Uh, we're not restarting, excuse me, we're, we're getting more vaccines and we can keep on vaccinating individuals. Um, but we also have this variant on the horizon, uh, the B117 variant in particular. Uh, and this is transmitted much more quickly and could cause a third wave. Now, under those circumstances, it makes even more sense to prioritize the older age groups first because it's much harder to, for the vaccine to block transmission if the virus is more transmissible. Uh, and that's kind of intuitive, you know, if, if the virus just transmits more quickly, you've got to, uh, you know, hit it much more effectively with, with a vaccine if you want to stop transmission in, in its tracks. So, um, so because the variant uh, looks like it might be spreading uh, in Ontario and might be more transmissible, uh, it still makes sense to start with the 80-year-olds if, if, you, if we're trying to minimize the overall number of deaths from the pandemic. Isn't that interesting? Because immediately you might think, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got to get it to the people who typically are, are out, are coming into contact with other individuals, but the modeling does not show that. That's correct, yeah. And, uh, and the reason why that doesn't work is that at the current pace of vaccinations, we, we won't be able to get enough vaccines out there to, to make a significant dent in transmission. So, so that strategy of, of, of blocking transmission can work, but it only works if you've got a kind of critical mass of, of vaccinated people. And at the current rates of vaccination, we're, we're not at that point where that, would, that strategy would work. We are talking right now with Dr. Chris Bach from the University of Waterloo, and we're looking at who should get vaccines and whether things are still kind of the same as what they were even before we started to have vaccines arriving. Let's play hypothetical for a moment, Dr. Bach. What if the shipments of vaccines do pick up and and we have an awful lot and and we're really going and and being able to vaccinate people quickly? Does that change the approach at all, according to the modeling? Yeah, that would change the approach. Uh, If we could vaccinate uh, enough people per week, then we could probably prevent more deaths by... uh, distributing the vaccine widely, dispersing it widely to all age groups. So, so a non-targeted strategy. Um, but that, at this point in the pandemic, for that to work would require us to be able to vaccinate more than 5% of the population per, per week. So I just don't think we're at that point, either in terms of the number of vaccines we're going to get in the best case scenario, or in terms of 
terms of our ability to administer them uh, unless we allow pharmacies to administer them, for example. So, so for, that, for that strategy to work, we would need a lot more vaccines. And uh, I don't think it's plausible with our current um, uh, uh, supply or logistics to accomplish that. Right. So 5% of the population per week, you say? That, that's a hefty amount. That is, yeah. And uh, so, that's, uh, uh, so that's why even with you know, this, this good news about getting some more doses on the horizon, uh, I don't think we'll be able to hit 5%. So we should keep on with, with the approach of, of prioritizing 80-year-olds first. And then as you look at the strategies, what do we do next? What do you anticipate happening after, let's say, and here, keeping fingers crossed, that we get everybody who is 80 and above, everybody in a long-term care facility or associated with a long-term care facility, frontline healthcare workers, all of those groups have been vaccinated. What does the modeling say we do next? Mm. So once we've protected the most vulnerable groups, but then we would go after contacts. And I think we should target uh, identifiable groups that, that we know tend to have more contacts. Uh, so for example, if uh, you work in a restaurant or at a grocery store uh, where by the nature of your job, you just have to be in contact with people, they should be the next ones to get the vaccine. Uh, and then people like me who work from home, <laughs> unfortunately, we have to go to the end of the line and we should be the last vaccinated because we, we can uh, prevent our contacts uh, more easily. Um, and I think if we can prioritize those high contract, high contact employment sectors, uh, then we'll be able to interrupt transmission much more effectively uh, and get cases down, you know, almost to zero. So you can envision that there's a scenario where we could see cases, you know, dwindling down to zero based on vaccination. I think we all need a reminder that that's on the table somewhere. I don't know where on the table it is. Yeah, yeah, I think it's I think it's a real possibility. Uh, and the reason I think that is, um, you know, first of all, we're going to vaccinate uh, well, there's supposed to be enough doses for everyone in the population to get vaccinated. Uh, and we also know that the vaccine uh, blocks, uh, well, depending on the vaccine, it blocks around 30 to 50% of, of infectivity so it, it, or, or transmissibility, in other words. So in about uh, a third to a half of people who get the vaccine, they will also not be able to infect others. Uh, now, if we, if we have that on top of the fact that a lot of people will have natural immunity from, from previous infection, um, then we'll probably, that will push us over the herd immunity threshold. Uh, I don't know if I wouldn't say it's hundred percent shot, but I would say maybe 80% chance we could reach the herd immunity threshold for a combination of vaccine immunity and natural immunity, which means we could be looking at uh, essentially no cases uh, f uh, by, uh, by a September, uh, except for the occasional uh, case that might come in from from, from elsewhere, isn't that but that's, yeah yeah? But if we get everyone vaccinated by then, then I, I think it's a real possibility. Uh, even though it seems hard to conceive now, <laughs> but uh, it's it, it could definitely happen. Dr. Chris Bach joining us, University Research Chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics at the University of Waterloo. Herd immunity is something that we heard about in the early stages of this pandemic. How does it kind of work in in terms of what percentage of the population you need? Right. So the way we figure out that threshold, that percentage, is we, we try to figure out uh, 
under what circumstances uh, each infected person infects less than one new, new person or creates le more, less than one new case. So for example, if there are 10 infected people and each of them only infect, uh, um, say, half, uh, uh, well, you know, half person on average, then after, after 10, there are five infections and then five infections becomes, you know, around two or three uh, and it dies out. But if each infected person creates more than one infection, uh, then it grows exponentially. So one becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, et cetera. So the, the insight of herd immunity is that we don't have to uh, uh, make sure that every single person is immune. We only have to have enough percentage immune so that uh, each infected person causes less than one new infection. And under those circumstances, the infection will die out. Now we get that number by studying the, how transmissible the virus is uh, and how that's modulated by, uh, you know, whether we're in lockdown uh, and seasonality. And so for COVID, you know, for example, we, we think that uh, if we're not in lockdown, uh, then you would have to get around 70% of the population uh, uh, immune in order to reach the herd immunity threshold where it will just die out on its own. Um, so that's kind of a, a, in a nutshell where that number comes from. And like I said, that can, of course, be modulated by things like the variant, is the variant present and what time of year it is, et cetera. Sure. Well, Dr. Bach, thank you so much for the rundown and the positivity about this. That light at the end of the tunnel sure seems a whole lot brighter when we're listening to you talk about things like September and herd immunity and the way that things could take over. Fingers crossed. Here's hoping we continue down that path. Thanks so much for the time. Yeah, thanks. And take, uh, take care, Mike. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Chris Bach from Applied Mathematics, where he is a professor at the University of Waterloo. And he mentioned, of course, if you can get that number of rate of transmission down under one, where one person is transmitting to fewer than another one person, then obviously you're going to be headed in the right direction. As much as we're going to look back at this pandemic in five and ten years and people are going to create college and university courses talking about what was handled improperly and what wasn't done right you know what else is going to happen we're going to look back and say a lot of cool things came out of this a lot of cool things came out of this and it provided an opportunity for reconnection and sometimes that creates great things and we happen to have a story about that right now that features London's own Blue Bones, because after 25 years, they are back together. They have a new single. They're calling it a comeback single. And joining us right now is the lead singer of Blue Bones, Gord Pryor. Gord, how are things? Things are great, Mike. How are you? Not bad. So a pandemic brings a band back together. There has to be a story there somewhere. How did this all unfold? <laughs> well, we did have a little bit of extra free time on our hands this year. Um, and thanks to, you know, technology and email and the way you can record music now, we were sort of able to um, get the song finished by sending the songs back and forth to each other, you know, through email and everybody would contribute their parts and and it was a kind of an open book uh you know no pushback from anybody do whatever you feel best for for the song and and over a few months we 
we kind of whittled away at this tune and um when we were finished our parts we sent it down to Maddie Green in um in Los Angeles to mix it and he mixed it sent it back to us and we were just really thrilled with the result and it was a lot of fun to do so was this something you guys have been talking about pre-pandemic? I mean, every couple of years would it come up? You know what we should do? We got to we got to get back together. We got to do a song. We got to or was this something that one of you came up with and then got going on? You know, uh we've out, we've talked about it for years, but um this year because there was some time to actually see each other, you know, on and off, of course, wearing a mask and all that kind of stuff. But during the summer it was a lot easier to get together like that. And um, my friend Boris, who's the guitar player in the band, he just happened to play me, you know, a few chords one afternoon. And, and right away I kind of heard a melody and, and I recorded it on my iPhone. And then it just kind of built from there. So it kind of happened by accident in a way. Um, but boy, are we ever glad that we, we did have some time to do this. And it's a great, uh, it's a great thing to do something with old friends and, and do something positive, you know, and... And we wanted to just write a happy song about sunshine and better days ahead instead of getting into anything too political or, you know, depressing. I think we all need to have a good laugh sometimes. Well, the song is called She's Got Away With Love, and we're talking with Gord Pryor of Blue Bones. When you go back, where were you guys performing last? When when you think about some of the spots, because we were discussing this last week when the idea came out about revitalizing live music in London and live music venues. So where were some of your favorite spots to perform? Well, I did get to perform as a guest uh, singer with the Brad Gibb All-Star Band uh, a couple of Christmases ago. I was pretty grateful for that, and that was a lot of fun. That was just a a bunch of cool bars within London, but my, you know, I really do have fond memories of playing the Gasworks in Toronto and RPM in Toronto and, you know, just different venues like the Lethbridge Arena back in 1994 with April Wine and uh, Commodore Ballroom in Vancouver. And there's just so many great venues uh, that unfortunately aren't even around anymore, but I really did love the traveling and the touring back then, and getting to play with your with your idols was always fun too. When you look at what makes a good venue, what is it for you, Gord? Um, a good venue should have you know just decent sight lines so the audience can see you. And there's nothing worse than showing up at a bar or a club and there's a great big pole in the middle of the stage, and there is a few of those across the country, and. Um, and it's, it doesn't hurt when the PA system is in good shape and not feeding back and that type of thing. So now, um, when when you talk about having a, a a good spot and you know being on the road, being with a band, is that something that you guys envision trying again? Could could we see more than just a single? Well, to be honest, we haven't thought too too far ahead in that regard especially with the lockdown and the way things are right now um but i wouldn't rule it out if it was for the right reasons like even to do some help with charity works always a good reason to get back together so there's definitely a possibility that that could happen but for now we're just happy to be able to even just write some new stuff and get it out there and thanks to the internet it's it's so much easier to get your song heard and um, a lot of our old friends and fans are really happy we did something new after all this time. We're talking with Gord Pryor, 
as we talk about a new single that is out from London's own Blue Bones. She's got a way with love. Where do we find it? Thank you hey, so much. Yeah. Where where do we where do we find the song? Oh, that's a great question. You can find if you go on Google and type in She's Got Away with Love Blue Bones, it's gonna be on every streaming platform from you know, Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon. It's pretty much on all the streaming platforms. It's out on YouTube. We have a brand new animated video uh, that's getting a really great response. It's a real fun, colorful animated video that we had done with a company called Flickly, who were just fantastic to work with. And you can go to Blue Bones at Bandcamp and download a high-res file there if you want, but it's everywhere, so it's not hard to find. And this weekend, you mentioned doing things for charity. This weekend, we've got a lot of local artists and other artists as well getting involved with what Brian Vollmer is putting together in support of Tristan Roby. And if we think back, Tristan was involved in a hit-and-run accident about a year and a half ago while he was on his bike and it left him in hospital for months and months. What does it mean to see the, the music community getting together for that? Oh, it's it's just awesome, and it's really inspiring. And hats off to Brian uh, Vollmer from Helix for, for doing this and bringing all these bands together. We're honored to be a part of it. Uh, there's some great talent there. You've got Tim Hicks and uh, Danko Jones, if I'm allowed to mention who's involved. There's Lee Aaron, um, Todd Kearns from Slash's band, Ray Lyle, uh, London's Bob Noxious, the Mudman, uh, Al Harlow, the singer from Prism, Sire, Sarah Smith, After the Lounge. I mean, it's a really great group of uh, musicians and artists, and I'm really looking forward to uh, to hearing everybody. And that comes up on Saturday. Do you know what the format is going to be for that, Gordon? It's going to be streaming live uh, at planethelix.com, and I know uh, it's at 5 p.m., uh, Studio 73 and Jay Panaseco is involved in uh, getting this on the airwaves, and uh, there's a lot of different sponsors. Uh, Forest City London Music Awards is, are, are helping promote this as well. Uh, so there's a lot of local involvement, and at 5 p.m., that would be the place to be, is uh, get your computers on, get that show streaming, and, and crank it up. Great stuff. And, well, and donate, hey. donate, donate, <laughs> donate. Absolutely. Well, thanks for giving us something to put on and crank up. After 25 years, we'll see. Hopefully you guys don't have to wait another 25 before you do this again. (laughs) But, Gord, congratulations. Thanks for spending some time with us this afternoon. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Keep safe. You too. All the best. That is Gord Pryor from Blue Bones. So we talked last week about revitalizing live music and live music venues and that's one of those things you can get to look forward to you think about being able to go and sit and listen to live music there have been ways to do it during the pandemic but not quite in the same way not not in the same way that we used to you just don't you don't have that freedom well one day Hopefully in the near future, uh, freedom will come back, and then we'll be talking a lot more about live venues and live music. And as Gord pointed out at the end, there is that event. We're actually going to talk with Brian Vollmer about this tomorrow. But Tristan Roby, 18 years old, was 
seriously injured as he was riding his bike. It was a hit and run. He was in a coma. And right now they're looking at a stem cell treatment. And so this is not free. And so Brian has put together a whole lot of artists. I mean, gorgeous named some of them from Danko Jones to Ray Lyle to Lee Aaron, Sarah Smith and Bob Noxious and Sire. And so they're all involved. And that starts streaming on Saturday at five o'clock. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.